I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. If I didn't turn the water tap off completely faith at me, um, if, uh, if I didn't say the right thing, he tipped me. He held knives to my throat. He told me I better watch my back. Um, he said, always watch the back with me. Her feet were tied with that electrical, um, electrical cord that he used to kill Leslie. And there was like cord around her neck, and then he strangled her after he was done. It stands out really clear in my mind because the night before I left him, he did the exact same thing to me, only he didn't tell me. I, I'm not going to sit here and you know, come voluntarily and have people come. You guys ban me from the press, you, you roll your stories over and constantly say that I'm a liar, I'm a liar. I made mistakes 17 years ago. So, okay, fine, I did. But, but now we're talking about today and you're not going to roll forward that I'm some psychopathic liar sitting in jail claiming other people's responsibilities for other crimes. This is a total cross-examination point. You want to start this thing? Lockyer is going to grab a hold of it and say, well, he lied about other crimes. You know, he's a, he's a crazy liar. Why didn't you guys resolve this? The night of the attack, Carla watched as Tammy grew woozy from the halcyon-laced after-dinner drinks. Carla knew that combination, plus the anesthetic halothane on a full stomach, were risky. When Tammy passed out, Carla held a halothane-soaked cloth over her sister's mouth during the assault. Tammy choked on vomit and stopped breathing. She couldn't be revived. Two coroners who reviewed the case, one officially and one for the Fifth Estate, believed there was enough halothane on the cloth to have caused this burn on Tammy's face. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. We are back once again in Boston Sound with a brand new case. How are you doing, Benjamin? Very good. Thank you very much. It's, it's good to be back. Another week, another case, another chance for me to spend some time with my two boys. Yeah, producer Dan, how are you doing? <laughs> very good. Spring <laughs> oh, is springing and I love it. I feel great. In the words yeah. of Ben Carter, spring is sprung. Not yet, though. That's not sprung. It's springing. No, but he said it on the way here. And I was like, that's... Oh, he? Yeah, Dan's going to be pissed off. Yeah, I'm fucking that. fuming. I don't remember saying that. My eyes do itch slightly, though. Like hay fever's sort of in the air. Something else for you to moan about every week. <laughs> nah, fair play to Dan you. Dan hit me before we started filming. Guys and girls. Everyone. Hit is a strong word. It is. But Dan, you know he's a sensitive little flower he is. on the spring theme. Um, and he is very delicate these days. Yeah. Thank Always you. ill. Thank mm. you. Delicate's not the worst adjective. It's not. Pathetic. <laughs> See? I told you. <laughs> you could have left it, but... Before we start, I want to say a huge congratulations to Jack, Stevie, Robbie and Alfie. We went to their live Happy Hour podcast. We went to Cambridge to see them and it was bloody brilliant. So I want to say a big well done to them. Very proud of everything they've achieved. Smashing very good. it. Very, very good, wasn't it? And we met a lot of people, didn't we, Ben? We did. 
which was amazing. We had a few people come over and ask for pictures. We had a nice little chat. We had a few people say they didn't come over because they didn't want to disturb us. But come over next time because we, we like to be disturbed. <laughs> I was at the bar. I got grabbed at the bar. I thought I was being thrown out. For what? I don't know. <laughs> be for your phone, have they, mate? <laughs> have they? Thank you. that in. Yeah, it was lovely to meet you guys, and some of you were even sporting our new merch, and it looked bloody good. And it's also inspired us to maybe one day get this ICMAP show on the road, or yeah. maybe just do an intimate little pub venue. Yeah, the cogs are turning up here. I've got, yeah. some big, I've got some big ideas. There's some big fucking ideas in there, Ben, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, it's wait. actually really stressing me out, so I don't think we're going to do it. I don't think we're going to do it now. The ideas are too big. Yeah, you know? go get those. And I feel like some, something or someone would mess them up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. What do you mean, Dan? Says you're a fuck up. Did he say that? I think so. No, no, no. I no, hear it. Nah, not you. Today's case, um, we seem to be going on a theme of child killings recently, yeah. which I'd like to stay away from. I thought you were going to say Canada. <laughs> so we'll go through the the various titles of this particular case in a minute. But what was it, Tom, that made you want to cover the case of the Ken and Barbie killers? Well, the name is very striking, Ben, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, like, I remember hearing the name. I remember. A bit like Philpot, it's like figure of fun, we thought. I thought the Ken and Barbie killers, obviously it has killer in the name, but mm. Ken and Barbie, I was just thinking, it's intriguing. Yeah. And then open up the box, the Barbie box, and it's disgusting in, yeah. in there. Dirty Barbie. It is. Ah. You meant it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and uh, Ken and Bart, uh, this case is vile. Very, very dark. There is a lot of Ian Brady and Murray Hindley vibes. Yeah. But the kind of the American version, it is a brutal case. I get vibes from him as well of kind of a a wannabe Bundy. Kind of, yeah. Kind (laughs) of. In a way. Uh, Cool. Actually, not really. Actually, fucking, it's nothing like him. Do you want to say it and not say that? (laughs) That's fine. Ah, you kicked my shoe into my little toe. Oh, God, another thing. Fucking hell. Made of ice. Thank you. Why is that? Because I'm very cool. <laughs> Just give you a little puddle. Me in your drink. A wet puddle. Mm. That's not nice. Well, if you live in the sun. Thank you, Roger. So, yes, today's case is the Ken and Barbie Killers, also known as the case of Paul Bernardo in Carla Hamolka, the Scarborough Rapist, the Witch of Ontario, and the School Girl Killer. The interesting thing about this is, yeah, it kind of weaves a few different cases together. It does, um, yeah. Yeah, the Scarborough Rapist um, was a very prolific head during the time. It turned out to be Paul Bernardo. Ken, and Ken and Barbie Killers. Did you know a lot about it before researching it? I've heard Bernardo's name referenced in two or three of the uh, Jim Can't Swim interrogations where it's that really, really good mm. interrogator that's like, he makes a reference in one of the particularly bleak ones where he goes, oh, you're, you're going away for a long time. You're going to go and make googly eyes with Bernardo. And I was like, who's Bernardo? Mm-hmm. Who is he? And I had a look and now I'm like, oh, wish I hadn't. Well, we're going to get into it then. Let's, we have to. Well, we're here now. The audience want to hear a case. We are here to provide them the details of the case, the the story, the ins and outs, the, the childhood, how they emerged to be such horrible monsters. Yeah, as I said, the modern day version of the Ian Brady and Myra Hindley is with a lot of the technology that wasn't there during that case. In this case, intertwined, it's so much more evidence and a lot more detail. And it's, yeah, it's very brutal. But um, yeah, we're going to get into it now. Carla Leanne Homolka was born on the 4th of May, 1970 in Port Credit. Port Credit. <laughs> Is that what you were going to do? No, no, just thought you said it weird. Cut, oh, I've got to just pull the hair out. Ow. Pathetic. Don't, because I'm really giggly now. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> I'm really giggly now, Daddy. <laughs> right, I'm going to go now. Hell. Carla Leanne Homolka was born on the 4th of May 1970 in Port Credit, Ontario. Ontario. Canada. 
She was the first of three daughters born to Karel Homolka and Dorothy Siegel, with yes. Carla being the eldest, Laurie being the middle, and Tammy being the youngest of the couple's daughters. All three of the Homolka children were regarded as visually striking, with bright blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. The family of five were initially very close-knit and lived in a middle-class suburb of Mississauga. They were said to have been very popular with their neighbours and well-liked amongst their local community. All three of the Homolka sisters performed well at school, with Carla herself later going on to test for an IQ of 132, which is considered to be highly superior intelligence. What did I get? 20? 125. Yeah, on a 10-minute quiz. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty superior intelligence. I don't know, mate. <laughs> and all of the Homolka girls were very socially active from a very early age. They did not encounter any bullying, nor did they find it very hard to make new friends. Carla's mother, Dorothy, was born in Ontario and had worked in care for the elderly for most of her life. She doted on her three daughters and was extremely proud of all of them. She described Carla's birth as the happiest day of her life. Though it was alleged that Carell was desperate for a son and extremely disappointed when two more girls followed. I had a friend that had, he had a vasectomy after the third girl. Desperate for a boy. <laughs> desperate. Do they listen to this? Uh, the wife does, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Hi, Karen. Hopefully the kids don't. Carla's father, Karel, was a Czechoslovakian immigrant who had moved to Canada as a boy in the mid-1950s with the hopes of starting a new life. He later met Dorothy when the pair were teenagers. He worked as a travelling salesman and would often leave the family home for days at a time, with his work taking him all across Canada and America. His absence from the family home would be met with mixed reactions from the rest of the family, as Karel was said to have been a domineering alcoholic with an extremely short temper. He would often verbally berate his wife Dorothy as well as their three daughters. Yeah, an interesting character. Sounds horrible to me. Yeah, he, really horrible. Yeah. Uh, very horrible, actually, I think. Mm. But yeah, go away for, for days at a time, come back, and it wouldn't be the warmest welcome uh, on his part. Not a nice guy. When Carell returned from his business trips that seemed to become longer over time, he would start to drink heavier, and his anger towards the rest of the family seemed to escalate also, with Carla taking the brunt of it. Over time, and as she grew older, Carla learnt how to deal with her father's alcohol issues, and she would compartmentalise his abuse. She and her sisters would often retreat to the basement of the house when their father started drinking, though they would report hearing him screaming at their mother through the ceiling. They have claimed that he never reached physical levels of abuse, however he would bully and berate his wife and daughters, calling them names and insulting them. As the eldest of her siblings, Carla often would take the lead and set a solid example for the family. This was also the case with her social life, her school life and in the family home. Carla liked to have control of everything in her life and never wanted to be perceived as somebody with weaknesses or vulnerabilities which was made more difficult by her father's drunken insults. Taking the lead and having control was also important to Carla as an infant, and though there weren't any behaviours or concerns during Carla's early years, she would have extensive tantrums when things didn't go her way. When she played with her friends in the neighbourhood, she initially would refrain from sharing any of her toys with them. Eventually, she allowed other children to play with her toys, but on the sole condition that they played with them exactly the way she told them to. If she didn't, she would take her dolls and go home! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Just one, not four. <laughs> Though most of her friends viewed Carla as bossy and controlling, most of them stayed by her side as she remained highly popular. Carla had a really close group of friends that went by the Four Musketeers, and although they would eventually go to different high schools, they all remained in touch. I wonder who was the fourth. That was unfortunate. Oh, that's like me, Dan, Bonsi, and you. You know what I mean? No. Oh, okay. Um, and, and one thing that Carla did, which, with hindsight, is this innocence or is this a sign of kind of where her psyche is? She once made a parachute for a friend's hamster and they threw it out the window and obviously the parachute didn't work and the hamster then passed away, which isn't funny. Me and Dan both had hamsters, didn't we, Dan? I had a hamster. When did you have a hamster? When I was really young. I was trying to recall its name just now. It was Homer. 
<laughs> I didn't home. expect Homer. Homer, okay. yeah. Home of the hamster. Yeah. What happened to Died him? Died of old age. Died of old age? Yeah. Good lad. So he was about two or three. Fair play to him. I have to say, Wendy is part of the garden now. That's nice. Buried her under the tree. Oh. Uh, now she's part of the tree. That is very cute, Dan. Rest in peace, Wendy. Home. Well, I hope you didn't do this bit, Dan. Takala would eventually go back to there and dig it up to see what had happened afterwards. Oh, but which God. is curiosity, or is it actually like a sign of something darker and deeper? Definitely. I wonder what the parachute was as well. Was it like a plastic bag like you do with army men, action men, and throw them out the window of plastic bag under their arms? And it doesn't usually end well for the action man. I don't think the plastic bag would have fit on the little hamster arms, but... Mm, that's true. Maybe that's... Maybe it, Maybe that's what happened. It's not funny. It's he, not funny. That's not funny. I've had hamster. It's sad. Yeah, I'm starting to worry how Homer actually did pass away. In his sleep. In, very old age. In his sleep. I mean, he was awake when I had him and then I stood him and he was so sleepy afterwards. I couldn't wake him up. Yeah. You dark bastard. That could potentially be seen as a sign. Yeah, definitely. Either um, way, don't do that to your hamster oh, or yes, your friend. Yes, sorry, we should say that. Yeah. Disclaimer, don't ever chuck a hamster. Just never chuck a hamster. Or any animal. Yeah. Unless it's a bird. I still wouldn't chuck a bird. I'd no. Maybe, I'd maybe release it with some, yeah. with some enthusiasm. Oh, I saw a horrible video on Twitter oh, of um, this group of ladies at a funeral holding a dove. And I think one of the ladies just held the dove way too tightly for way too long. And they all went to let them release them. Mm. And she, the dove just fell. I think it's your paragraph. It's my bit. yeah. Sure. He's in that guy, that security guard is trying to he's breathing into that pigeon's mouth, trying to get it alive, and he throws it up and he just goes. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, yeah. That's horrible about the hamster. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible about the hamster. But we are keeping the bit, but you're killing the hamster. Go. Didn't kill it, it fucking died. Even if you kill it, it dies, Ben. Of natural causes in its sleep, peacefully. It's well looked after hamster. Didn't even remember his fucking name until Homer. <laughs> At school, Carla was regarded as an extremely bright child with endless possibilities for her future. It was clear from an early age that Carla was more intelligent than the average student, and this is something that she, her teachers and her parents seemed to be more than aware of. She seemed to be destined for success and was described as an extremely eager student. Carla remained focused on her studies with the aim of one day becoming a vet, which is scary given what she tried to do to the hamster. Mm, maybe she wanted to undo it though. Maybe. She also has some ideas to join in the police force, which mm. again is terrifying when you know the way she goes. And Carla had always absolutely adored animals. I wouldn't always is. I'm not convinced. Another interesting point to note about a young Carla is that she was always willing to speak her mind. And this is when it came to other children or even adults. You always get some kids that are just overly confident for a seven year old. Mm. Not specifically seven, but around that sort of time. If there was ever a person or a process that she did not agree with, she would make it clear to others and would become quite stubborn if somebody didn't necessarily agree with her view. Despite this, she remained a very popular young girl and was seemingly loved by everybody. Before Carla had reached her teenage years, it was revealed to the Homolka family that their father Karel had been having an affair with a mistress whilst away at work. When he was found to be keeping a mistress by Dorothy, you might expect that their arguments became all the more explosive. However, Dorothy suggested to Carell that the pair have a threesome with his mistress and then carry on as normal. Mm. And they did. Yeah, so, I mean, this will become a bit more of a thing later on, but with Carla, this if she knew about it, which, you know, I don't know how much she did know about it, this could really affect, you know, how she perceives sexuality and how, you know, if you want to be with someone, rewarding them with this kind of thing and being very open with sexuality. It's a very interesting take, isn't it? Yeah. If you find someone cheating, you go, yeah, well, I, I want a bit of that. Yeah, and so yeah, so they did. So Carell was caught out, and 
not really punished for yeah, it. Yeah, Dorothy's like, yes, please. Yes, please, too. So this was something that was discussed openly in the household with the Homolka children becoming, as, as Tom said, exposed to sexuality from quite an early age. When you go on to compare childhoods between hers and Paul's, his is quite a bit darker in terms of the kind of first exposure to sex. Carla experienced her first real challenges in life when she attended Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School. Out of nowhere, she began to encounter bouts of depression. This is likely due to the emotional abuse that she suffered from her father and the unstable home. And as a result of this, she drastically changed her appearance and began to drink alcohol with her friends. A girl that had grown up in pink floral dresses now filled her wardrobe with dark clothing, dyed her blonde hair red and black, started listening to rock music as well as punk. She also began to self-harm with multiple scars appearing on her wrists and legs. And some have claimed that as a teenager, she would often make suicidal threats, claiming to her close circle of friends that she had actually attempted suicide on numerous occasions. At the same time, Carla also developed a curious fascination with death. I mean, that first half, changing her appearance, listening to different music, that's kind of drinking alcohol, that's kind of normal teenage behaviour. Even the curiosities that she's got, that's not... Apart from the hamster parachute bit, I don't... There's no red flags for me yet. No, I mean... Obviously, some the kind of things she hard relationship with her father. I mean, yeah, we very much grew up in the emo phase, didn't we? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, wearing dark clothes, listening to to rock and uh, punk, and I mean, fascination of death. I mean, to be honest, we do a true crime podcast, so yeah. you know, we obviously have one as well. So, yeah. it's not too alarming, but yeah, I mean, maybe going from the bright eyed blonde girl who was very much one way then drastically changing into that, yeah, was quite. Um, maybe the parents found that alarming, like we know before with people looking gothy people think that they're satanists and all this stuff many have speculated that carla made a lot of these changes in order to remain at the center of attention but also to rebel against her father mm. and try and maintain his attention so when carla's friends expressed their concerns about her ever-changing appearance and behaviors she simply rebutted that she was depressed and that this was her way of coping but as she grew older carla developed more of a morbid fascination with death she would regularly research atrocities from world war ii and also research serial killers and murderers ian brady Got really into the World War Two and the Hitler books. The Hitler books. <laughs> the famous Hitler books. She would also go on to experience sadistic and masochistic fantasies and have daydreams about harming herself and others, with one particularly vivid dream of playing connect the dots on someone's face with a knife. Horrible. Yeah, that is grisly. Horrific. So there are two common speculations as to why Carla's behaviour changed so drastically. Number one is that she was simply seeking attention and wanting to have control at all times. And she viewed this as a quick way to generate and maintain attention whilst having complete control. Another is that Carla was seeking external validation due to the fact that she rarely received this at the family home. So as we mentioned, she could have been rebelling in order to upset her abusive and often distant father, wanting to cause some revenge on the man that had verbally berated her so often as a child. Alternatively, she could have done this simply to get attention from a man that she so rarely received attention from. This could be the way to get Carell to finally pay attention to her. Despite the challenges in her personal life, Carla remained a high-performing student. She finished secondary school with excellent grades and Carla would go on to attend high school and take on her first job as an assistant at a pet shop. Anyone in town knows what she's done with a hamster. She's not getting that job. I don't think she did it willingly trying to kill the hamster. I don't understand the purpose of it. Obviously, it's cruel, and I think... It, but then, if it's a young, innocent age, and you're trying to do something, I don't know, because it's like, if she just literally flat-out stamped on it, you'd be like, yeah. But then the parachute side of it, I don't know if that was just like a... Obviously, very stupid, but... Um, 
she got the job. Mm-hmm. She's working at a pet shop part-time whilst also attending high school. And whilst all of this is going on, she's studying with the aim to eventually become a full-time veterinary technician, which she would go on to do. Around the same time, she would also start to receive a lot of attention from males. She'd always been popular with boys at her school, but always found a reason to turn them down or put distance between herself and her suitors. However, this pattern started to change when she continued to experience sexually masochistic dreams that included her being bound and beaten whilst being humiliated and degraded. Carla got a lot of pleasure from these dreams and also began to desire the experience of this in real life. So she probably was looking at boys that went to the pet shop, the pet, the pet shop boys, and thought it's a sin. If um, it's pretty good, I mean, I had to really fucking push that one in. Well, pardon in these, in these dreams, yeah. Push it in. That's just, that conversation went went west. Go west. Yeah. At the age of seventeen, Carla told her friends that she had lost her virginity to a local and slightly older man named Doug. She dug Doug. Well, she went on to describe hours of bondage and physical abuse in the context of losing her virginity. So she came to basically it was like very snm lots of like whips, chains, all this kind of stuff. She also claimed that Doug was high on cocaine and yeah, she basically really kind of spun the yarn, the um, ch- ch- or spun the chain about um, Doug being very violent and in her loving it basically, her being tied up, yeah. being hit with a belt. But after being interviewed about this was like, no, it was just very normal. Yeah. Beige sex. Very beige. So obviously Carla wanted that kind of sex. That's what she craved. But Doug was a bit more like, yeah, not for me. Which happens. Pardon? Beige, there's nothing wrong with beige. I'm not saying it. Good colour. Yeah, when, when Carla was sort of telling all of her friends, these four musketeers, I imagine, about what had happened, they were all just kind of sat there like, he did what? You did where? How many times? Yeah, that kind of conversation, I imagine. But yeah. um, nevertheless, Carla's sexual fantasies continued to escalate. She wanted to find a masochistic sexual partner who would show her absolutely no care or respect and she would not have to wait much longer to find this person. When did you meet her again? There you go. It's not my thing. What sex? <laughs> In October of 1987, 17-year-old Carla was invited to attend a veterinary convention in Scarborough which wasn't too far from home, but did require an overnight stay. Once the convention had come to a close, Carla opted to go to the hotel bar in order to get a drink before going to bed. It is here that she would meet 23-year-old Paul Bernardo, who would go on to change her life forever. Bernardo became fixated on Carla. He immediately walked over to her and introduced himself before offering to buy her a drink. The pair struck up a bond immediately, and after just one drink, Carla invited Bernardo up to her room. Before the pair had even gotten out of the hotel escalator together, Bernardo took hold of Carla by the waist. They started kissing and slowly made their way to Carla's room. The second the hotel room door was closed, Bernardo began to bring Carla's sexually masochistic fantasies to life. There's an immediate... Connection. Immediate, yeah. They've had one drink, barely got to know each other, and they've made the decision to go upstairs together. The flame has met the petrol, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very mutual attraction, but she's kind of also found a very particular kind of match in terms of uh, what she's been craving as well. So other than obviously a strained relationship with her father and the sexual desires that she does have, and maybe to an extent the hamster moment, there's not really a lot out of the ordinary. She's had a very happy and healthy childhood. She's had some bouts with depression and self-harm, but she's always wanted to lead by example and kind of maintain control. It's a very, very different childhood to Bernardo, who she's just met. Mm. And um, it's quite interesting to kind of compare the childhoods as we progress. So it's definitely worth keeping in mind her childhood as we go on to discuss pools because they are drastically different. 
Although there are some very loose similarities. Commonalities, as I might say. Yeah. I'm trying to bring that word back. How are you doing? Mm. <laughs> Not too good. <laughs> right, well, now we're going to go into Paul Kenneth Bernardo's childhood. He was born on the 27th of August, 1964, in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. He was the youngest of three children born to Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo. Paul had an older brother named David and an older sister named Debbie. DDP. Yoga. He does do that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, cool. Was, You're just in a, bit, a baggy. It's me, it's me, it's DDP. It's not that old. He's getting there. <laughs> you sound like Catherine Tate's Nan character. Shit film. Well, I haven't seen it. If you have seen it, it look, you just look shit. Yeah. I can imagine you sticking it on. No, 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 no. <laughs> not so family life for Paul was in high contrast to Carla's. There was a huge amount of violence and abuse that he had to witness from a very young age. Paul's father, Kenneth, would regularly sexually abuse Paul's older sister, Debbie, in front of the rest of the family. So much so that it became normal in their world. Kenneth had a history of abusing women and young girls and would become physically violent with anybody who tried to intervene. It's horrific, isn't it? Kenneth had a complete hold on the entire Bernardo family whilst his two boys were young, and this is absolutely something that would influence Paul's behaviour later on in life. As a result of this, Paul's mother, Marilyn, gradually became more and more depressed, and her mental condition would slowly start to deteriorate. She would leave her family for days at a time in order to stay with relatives out of town, and this would leave her children vulnerable to Kenneth's abuse. Marilyn also developed agoraphobia and started living in the family basement, allowing Kenneth to essentially have access to rule the entire house. She became figuratively and literally beneath her husband. Despite her best efforts, she was unable to prevent a broken home and unable to prevent or protect her children from being abused by Kenneth. She blamed herself for this, but she also blamed her father, who had more or less demanded that Marilyn marry Kenneth instead of marrying her high school sweetheart. That's sad. Mm. Kenneth frequently verbally berated Marilyn and degraded his wife in front of their three children. A young Paul was seemingly unaware that this wasn't normal behaviour as he would observe it so regularly. The other Bernardo children, though slightly older, felt the same. So children regularly pick up on the actions of the adults in their lives and will later mirror it in their lives as well, which is a haunting precursor for Paul's later actions. Paul's father, Kenneth, would later be charged for his crimes against women and children when he was arrested for paedophilia and voyeurism. So it was a, he was a peeping Kenneth, but peeping. also a... Raping Kenneth. Ben? No. Okay, a, raping, a peeping and raping Kenneth. Yeah. And Paul's only male role model, who was obviously a very poor male role model, would be taken away from him and sent to prison. Kenneth had repeatedly beaten his wife, his sons and his daughter, but faced no charges for these crimes and perhaps the family never disclosed these issues of violence to the police. Marilyn would say that Paul was the most straightforward of her three children to raise, and that he required the least effort from us, referring to her and her husband, which is quite an odd thing to say about parenting. However, this could be something to do with a physical issue that created a developmental issue for Paul. From a very early age, it was clear that Paul struggled to communicate, and this was due to the fact that he was born with the majority of his tongue connected to the floor of his mouth. How are you, mate? <laughs> yeah, tongue... I'm not going to do impression. Yeah... <laughs> <laughs> I was just seeing what it'd be like. <laughs> I was just seeing what it'd be like, but yeah, to the flower. And it would remain this way until his surgery to separate it at the age of five, which is f five years is a long time. So the first five years, Paul was unable to communicate effectively and his verbal communication was limited to grunts and murmurs. Yeah, imagine like, as well from that age, obviously kids would be mean and, you know, not be able to do it for five years. It'd be, yeah, you can imagine that so, would set you back a fair bit. Very important years that he's kind of missed out on. Mm. He had to become very physically expressive in order to explain how he was feeling and get what he wanted. And when his chest just didn't work, Paul simply withdrew. He would later have to receive speech therapy and occasionally spoke with a stutter for which he was bullied. 
Despite these challenges, Paul had a relatively happy and healthy childhood. He made friends with local children and had positive relationships with his brother and sister. So that's the thing. He was, although all of this has happened between his parents and his father was absolutely hideous, he's kind of blissfully unaware of all of these negative things happening in his life. Paul was also, for a time, extremely close to his mother. Paul seemed fairly oblivious to the fact that he came from a broken home and was often described as a very happy-go-lucky child. Paul would enrol as a member in the Boy Scouts and would be well-adjusted in group environments. He was also, similarly to Carla, very able to make new friends quickly. It is here in the Boy Scouts, however, that Paul learned all about tying knots and how to start fires. So this is quite an escalation. Paul had become a pyromaniac before the age of 10 and he would regularly start fires in local parks and forests. It is whilst starting these various fires that Paul began to fantasise about the idea of setting fire to houses to watch the people inside them burn. He would also begin to fantasise about harming others, and whilst he would regularly play fight with his friends at school, they all became quite concerned when his play fighting started to end up in physical domination. Bit like hanging out with you. What do you mean? It always starts off playfully and then you always have to take it to a level where it hurts. Coming back now, here he comes. Oh, you always say you're going to beat the shit out of me and then when we do it, you just melt away. Mm, ice. Paul would put other boys in various holds and pin them to the ground, often to the point that he had to be removed from them by the other friends. And whilst he did not learn these behaviours in the Boy Scouts, he may well have learned them from his father, which is quite frightening. Despite this, Paul had no trouble making friends as he grew into a teenager. He became incredibly popular with the girls in his school. He had bright blue eyes and blonde hair and was regarded as a very handsome young man. On top of this, he was highly confident despite his early struggles in life and was also said to be highly charismatic and very, very charming. Just like with Carla, children and adults in his community all seemed to like him. He was one of, if not the, most popular boys in school. And I think that's quite an achievement given what he had to endure as a child. Obviously, a broken home, very aggressive father, sexually abusive father, mm. couldn't properly communicate until the age of five mm. to then turn around and become, you know, one of the most popular children at school. Yeah. A lot of friends, yeah. I mean, well regarded. Did he, when he was little, did he maybe maybe a bit more of an observer? You it know? could have been, yeah. Yeah, because he said he would withdraw if he couldn't communicate. But yeah, it, it's, it's quite the turnaround. Underneath the surface, however, all was not as it seemed. Teenage Paul became highly sexualized and started to experience fantasies of sexual domination, including molestation and rape. One such fantasy for a 14-year-old Paul was that he became an owner of a rape farm. Yeah, yeah, I know. A location in which he would a location in which he would breed virgin girls purely to rape them. That's horrific. Obviously a highly concerning fantasy for anybody, let alone a teenager. Though he had many girlfriends as a teenager, all relationships seemed to be short-lived. A rape farm, Ben. In 1981, when Paul was 16, his parents had a huge argument, which resulted in a physical confrontation between the two. As a result of this, Kenneth left the family house for a number of weeks. Whilst away, Marilyn, either in an attempt to protect her son or an attempt to put distance between her son and Kenneth, informed Paul that he was in fact not the biological son of Kenneth, and her actual father was a high school sweetheart, whom she was no longer in touch with. So yeah, the idea there was perhaps for Marilyn to kind of get Paul on side against Kenneth. And you would have thought Paul would be elated that that wasn't his father. The local paedophile, the abuser, peeping Kenneth, like we said. But this actually had the opposite effect of Paul, who became absolutely enraged by the fact that Marilyn had shared this with him. He basically viewed this as his mother telling him that she had cheated on his father. And for that, he began to resent her, despite the years of terrible abuse that she had to endure. I've heard different things about this moment. Either she had decided to kind of 
to try and comfort him, help mm. him say, look, actually, he's not your real dad. Yeah. But I've also heard that Paul and Marilyn were in a bit of a heated argument themselves and she turned and re- turned around and went, well, you're not even his biological son. It's like son. in the extent, it's like, you're not my mother. Yes, I am. But kind of, Kenneth's my father. No, he's not. You know. Yeah, kind of like, exactly I'm not. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was Cat and Zoe Slater on the square. He began to openly refer to his mother as a whore and a slut in front of his siblings and neighbours, to which, shockingly, Marilyn began to refer to Paul as a bastard child from hell. Clearly, the relationship had broken down as Paul was essentially left without any parents. As well as this, at around the same time, one of Paul's first serious girlfriends, Nadine Brammer... She sounds serious. She does, doesn't she? Mm. Nadine Brammer. Little post-it notes, I imagine. Yeah. She actually ended up leaving Paul for one of his closest friends, and she put this down to her being tired of Paul's continued controlling and abusive behaviours. I also heard that she just went up to him and said, I've kissed you, mate. As in your mate? Yeah. Yeah. I've kissed you, mate. She's like, yeah, I know when we're going out. Oh, Oh, you misheard me. (laughs) I'm actually with Stephen. So this was something that not only infuriated Paul, but also caused him a great deal of hurt. This, coupled with the actions of his parents, seemed to flick a switch within Paul and would cause him to take his life down a much different path. When Paul found out that his girlfriend had left him for one of his friends, he took some of her belongings, as well as gifts that she had given to him, and burnt them all. Whilst staring into the fire, Paul decided that he would never let another person have control of his emotions ever again, and that he would also never let a person leave or hurt him ever again, which is quite a common trend that we see in many of the other cases we have covered. Paul made the bizarre decision that he would only ever enter relationships with women he could have complete and utter control of, physically and mentally, and this is something that he would stand by for the rest of his life. Paul went on to graduate from high school and then attended the University of Toronto Scarborough, where, coincidentally, Colonel Russell Williams, another later Canadian serial killer and rapist, also attended and was only two years behind him. Paul also took on a travelling salesman role with a company called Amyway, a multi-level marketing sales. Sounds interesting. Does it? And he became fully immersed in the role of a salesman, using his natural charm and charisma to sell to customers. He began to progress consistently within the company, and he was well-liked amongst his peers. Apparently, he used to be very flirty with people, um, just in the sales, and very, yeah, very charming. He became obsessed with sales and also bought books and tapes from famous motivational speakers, and would also apply their lessons when he and his friends met young women in bars, seducing many young women successfully. He would share stories of this with his colleagues and also tell them about how aggressive he had been. He also informed some of his co-workers of his earlier fantasies of owning a rape farm. Park it. Just park yeah, the rape farm. That's not something you share. Or yeah. ever think about no but don't share it if you do think about it don't think about don't it don't think about yeah. it obviously please yeah I'm just going like after a few words and just going guys I've got something to tell you you're going you're crazy about this it's like no Paul they would all perceive this as harmless banter from Paul I'm going to open a farm yeah that's how he starts it and they all sort of listen in gather around not just any farm I don't want to say this part actually one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a bad idea. As this series of new relationships progressed, many of his one-night encounters would end abruptly when Paul attempted to force anal sex on the women he brought back to his room, or become too physically violent or verbally degrading with them. Over time, Paul's relationships became shorter and shorter, and he would frequently date more than one woman at the same time in order to try and find a relationship that would last. Which I thought seemed quite sort of counterproductive. Yeah, it's not really... Someone found out, it's like, look, baby, I'm just trying to find one that lasts. I'm trying to save you time, trying to save me time. Come on. If it was uh, Carla's mother, she'd be like, all right, let's get this going. In all cases, he was abusive and threatened to kill many of his girlfriends if they ever spoke to other people about the treatment he subjected them to, or if they tried to leave him. So much so that in 1986, two women were granted restraining orders against Paul for making obscene phone calls to them, and it is alleged that he may also have raped two women that had broken off their relationships with him. The following year, as we have already mentioned, Paul went on to meet Carla, and the pair formed a very immediate and very animalistic attraction to one another. The pair would fall in love very quickly, and Paul was immediately introduced to Carla's parents, who he seemed to win over instantly. They may have viewed Paul as someone who could help turn Carla's life around, when in fact it would go in the opposite direction. The pair would later go on to marry four years later in 1991. So Paul, he lived he lived two hours away from the family home, but he'd often go over there on the weekends. They thought Paul was sleeping on the sofa, but Paul would regularly sneak off to Carla's room and then go back there again. They all viewed him as a very charming young man. Carla's sisters looked at him as like an older brother. Kind of Everyone just got on very, very well. And it was very warm and yeah. On paper, it all seemed to be... Yeah, a very happy existence between the two. Well, Carell as well, travelling salesman. Paul, travelling salesman, they would have... He was training to be an accountant as well, so obviously a well-paid job, and he looked like he was going places, so they were very happy that she found a guy. And yeah, they looked very good together. So although the pair had this kind of visual appearance of having the perfect relationship, the Ken and Barbie good looks, life behind closed doors was not all that it appeared to be. Paul had actually made Carla keep a list of self-improvements as he seemed to continually manipulate and groom her. One of these particular lists was found to have said, Never let anybody know that our relationship is anything but perfect. Don't talk back to Paul. Always smile when you are with Paul. If Paul wants a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Be a perfect girlfriend for Paul. Remember you're stupid. Remember you're ugly. Remember you're fat. I don't know why I tell you these things, because you never change. Yeah, and Carla did tell her friends about the kind of abusive nature and how he was kind of horrible which I think although the family were quite sold on him the friends weren't yeah. so weren't so bowled over mm, definitely 
both of them have found kind of a mutual appreciation for one another in terms of what they are looking for sexually. But also Paul has now found someone that he can very much kind of visually and mentally manipulate. So basically he starts molding Carla into what he feels is the perfect partner and he will kind of visually and mentally manipulate her over time. He stops her from dyeing her hair any further so she returns to blonde. He stops her from kind of dressing alternatively or punk rocky. He also stops her from listening to the music that she likes. He makes her dress in kind of preppy outfits and also makes her stop eating takeaway food and start eating salads. He also begins to isolate her from seeing the rest of the four musketeers. They look kind of Jack Willsy. Maybe yeah. Hollister. Maybe, yeah. For more modern day reference, that kind of vibe. Yeah, I could see. I think that's a spot on vibe. Mm. Reference and vibe. Not a vibe, but a reference. Spot on reference. So at the same time, although Paul has met Carla and the pair have obviously struck up quite a serious relationship quite quickly, he is still seeing lots of other people. And Paul's series of short-term relationships and one-night stands with younger girls taught him that this would lead to possible further rejections or women leaving his life. You would think that the two restraining orders placed against him may have been enough of a warning sign for Paul to change his habits, but he was not deterred. And Paul realised that there was much more sinister and horrifyingly quicker ways to take somebody's innocence. He was annoyed at the fact that when he met Carla, she wasn't a virgin. Yep. And it was also with the, this group of co-workers in the sales roles, they were also bragging about ladies that they'd slept with. Or the locker room, locker room banter, people call it, which is... Yeah, yeah, one that he was very proud of coming back to the group with is that he'd, he'd laid with a virgin. Mm. Sorry. Can, that's you, not... can you sound more medieval when you say it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one that he was very proud of coming back to the group with is that he'd, he'd laid with a virgin. So one thing that Paul would regularly come back to the group with was that, was that he'd taken someone's virginity and he was very proud of that mm. fact. From the year that Paul met Carla all the way through to the year before their marriage, Paul had been living a double life, as, as, as we mentioned before, as the Scarborough rapist. Throughout his role as a travelling salesman, he worked across Canada, where he may have raped as many as 30 young girls and women. The ages ranged from 15 to 22 years old and all seemed to follow the common MO of approaching lone women in isolated or darkened areas, physically assaulting them and then raping them. Police initially expected a serial rapist to have attacked up to 15 people across the Scarborough area, though Paul allegedly had raped at least double that figure and had not yet been caught. With Paul having a seemingly stable relationship with Carla and the outward appearance of the perfect couple, life should have been coming together for the pair. However, their meeting, much like that of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, seemed to forward something far more sinister and far more deadly. So yeah, when, when, so when he was committing these rapes, he would often take items off the girls, like the ID, so he threatened that if they say anything, he's going to go into their house and get and murder the family. One of the rapes that he attempted um, was to a young girl, and he climbed into her bedroom when she was asleep. She woke up with him in the room. Just, just a horrible thought, and then, he, and then, luckily, the mum had heard the kind of commotion, came in, and he, he, he ran away. But yeah, he threatened a lot of people with killing them if they ever reported anything. There is a full kind of timeline of of different kind of events that took place throughout his kind of reign as the Scarborough rapist. It is an absolutely harrowing read, but the amount of times he was prevented as well, because the more rapes that occurred throughout kind of nineteen eighty seven, nineteen eighty eight the more police were aware of his presence. They mm. started staking out certain areas. He was caught hiding in various yeah. bus shelters and train stations. Yeah, he was hiding in the bushes. Uh, they, yeah. they, they caught him hiding in the bushes looking at someone at a bus, show, uh, bus stop and they, they didn't then, or they couldn't keep up with him when he ran away. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole case within itself, really. Yeah. It's here that we move into the Ken and Barbie killers timeline. In 1990, Paul lost his job. To keep money coming in, he begins to smuggle cigarettes across the border. And I did think as, as well, because we've got this far into the episode, people might be thinking, 
Where's my interesting fact? I don't think anyone's thinking that. I'm worried about it. I, well, I didn't say they'd be worried about it, but I said they might be thinking about being. I can, I'm sure they're fine with it. Do you want to do the next date? No, I'd rather do some interesting facts. Play the jingle. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Are they? I don't know. Interesting facts. Facts. So I thought, keep this one nice and cute, nice and short. Like um, Danny DeVito. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. You've used that before, haven't you? Have I? Cute and short. Yeah, but it worked. It was good. Okay, this one else. Like Paul Rudd. He's quite sure? tall, isn't he? He's cute, though. Paul Rudd is an Ant-Man. So whilst I, f- I thought, whilst Paul Bernardo was out there committing kind of Siggy heists... Um, yeah, and rape. These were not the only heists to hit Canadian shores. And um, I actually want to talk today and introduce our audience to uh, a heist that we're actually quite familiar with over at ICMAP. The great Canadian maple syrup heist. Yeah, we've posted about it on Instagram. Once, we, yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. Familiar. <clears throat> he looks a little bit like... He does, that's in my notes, yeah. yeah. He does look a bit like my dad, but it's not my dad. We're more of a sort of golden syrup family. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does look a little bit like my dad. So we'll start with the syrupy mastermind, Mr. Richard Valiers. So basically what, what he wanted to do is a bit down on his luck. He wanted to have one big payday and sort of sail off into the sunset. Mm. What he decided to do, Richard's plan, was to illegally generate millions of dollars by secretly draining Quebec's highly lucrative maple syrup reserve and then sell it illicitly. Don't drink out of the side of your mouth at me, Tom Norris. What do you mean? It's so rude. How's it rude? He knows it gets to me as well. And I was he's, paying attention to you. You're drinking out the side of your mouth at me. Out of your two litre bottle of Fanta. Tango. <laughs> Tango, yeah, please. Yeah. Pl- okay. Special respect. He basically decided that, you know what, people might notice if uh, a bank was robbed, but they might not notice if a, a small vault of uh, maple syrup was, went missing, uh, went awry. A small vault of So the theft took place over several months between 2010 and 2011, where the gang of sticky bandits siphoned almost 3,000 tonnes. 3,000 or... <laughs> I am developing a complex now because of this fucking podcast. Three. <laughs> three thousand. Three thousand tonnes. Any of those make the cut? The last one did. Oh. You usually look too surprised by it. Three thousand tonnes. He's to laughing. It. Yeah, but you did I, know, it. I was going to commit to it, but then heard this. <laughs> three thousand tonnes of maple syrup. That's now, a lot. That's a lot, that's of, a lot of syrup, isn't it? How, how, pan- how many pancakes are you having? Well, well, yeah, exactly. But what that basically equates to nine and a half a thousand barrels. Ooh. Big barrels of syrup. Valued at almost 19 million Canadian dollars. Jeez. Yeah, gang of them as well. There's multiple people. So basically what they did was they had employees on the inside of the uh, maple syrup factories that would, would work with the organisation. But thieves used trucks to transport barrels that were unmarked into white metal barrels that were only inspected once a year. And they would transport these barrels to a remote sugar shack where they then siphoned off the maple syrup, refilling the barrels with water and returning them to the factory ah. to make it seem like there was still something inside the barrels. So they did this over several months and obviously they got together 9,571 barrels and they started distributing it throughout all of Canada and America. They thought, excellent, we're onto a winner here. They were getting away with it, replacing the old barrels with water, taking the maple syrup, selling it on some sort of weird syrupy black market. Mm. Now the ringleader... A maple of- market? Yeah. Sounds quite nice. It does sound really nice, actually, yeah. Now the, the ringleader, Richard Valiers, who again looks a little bit like my dad... Got caught 
Ooh. and got ratted out, basically, got ratted out. So his big plan, his big uh, maple syrup heist, uh, was brought to the attention of police where they received an anonymous tip-off. And he and his accomplices ended up in jail. There are photos of him being arrested, and, and as we've talked about, it does look a bit like my dad. What happened then, he was given an ultimatum, either pay his victims $9 million Canadian dollars, which is almost half of what he'd actually stolen, or spend six years in jail. So he ended up actually spending six years in jail. So you, six years in jail and keep the money? I don't, I don't really know. Surely you would, if you're not getting to keep the money, then you would just, yeah, you would just do the other one. But then how would the victim? I'm sure that all the money's been taken off him. You would have hoped so. Both his assets. But yeah, it's an annoying one to be caught on because there's a lot of admin and taking a lot of time to do that. Yeah. Whereas if you rob a bank and get caught, that's immediate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, was, it wasn't just him. There were also 17 other gang members that were arrested. 17 other little sticky bandits. The Barrel Boys. Yeah, the Barrel Boys, yeah. Apparently there's also been a Hollywood movie that's been greenlit to go ahead about the heist. Really? I don't know if I'd watch that. No. Maybe if it was Christmassy. So they, <laughs> How would they make it Christmassy? Just sort of make it happen in December. That's enough for you. Yeah, so there you have it. The Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist. Love how you say you wouldn't watch the film because you think it'd be boring, but <laughs> but I've done an interesting <laughs> fact about it. Back to the case. <laughs> the twenty fourth of July, nineteen ninety, Paul becomes infatuated with Carla's sister Tammy. She's only fifteen, but Paul makes Carla aware that he is sexually attracted to her younger sister. That in itself is very, very weird. Mm. But yeah, I fancy your underage sister. What do you think of that? I don't like it. Mm, yeah, long pause. I didn't know you were asking me. But Paul and Carla had a very sub and dom kind of relationship. He was the um, dom and she was the sub. So she would do anything, like that letter you read earlier, she would do anything to please Paul. Carla goes as far as breaking the blinds in Tammy's room so that her fiancé would have a clearer view of her sister getting undressed. Apparently, and apparently he would stand outside, watch it, whilst um, having a go with himself. Whilst um, shaking hands with the governor, Ben. Peeling it back until it's sick, Ben. Whilst um, wanking his cock. Until he comes. He'd masturbate over that as well in the garden, apparently. He would uh, basically water the fl- water the flowers outside the house with cum. What else? He would empty his balls. Carla was not enough for Paul. He wanted Tammy too, as she was able to provide something Carla could not. Paul wasn't very happy that Carla wasn't a virgin. We, we already spoken about the uh, her losing the virginity to Doug. And Carla promised her husband that he would be the one to take Tammy's virginity, which is mad to think about that as a sentence i googled funny phrases for masturbating okay and the first thing that comes up is 500 500 masturbating euphemisms summoning the semen demon double clicking your mouse badgering the witness badgering the witness is good a date with pamela Anderson. <laughs> acting out the grapes of wrath backing your fist bang yourself beat the beaver beating my meat shaking hands with the milkman poaching the egg Marching the penguin. Oh. <laughs> five knuckle shuffle. That's quite a lot of them. Yeah, it's five hundred. Should we park that? Yeah, I'll save it for later. Yeah, maybe. Let us know. It's a good one. Okay. So Carla would often make a sister a spaghetti dinner. It wasn't unusual, but this time Carla would go on to make the spaghetti dinner laced with Valium. So Valium, this is a tranquilizing drug which is often used to treat anxiety and other panic disorders. So Tammy would pass out after having a meal, and Paul would begin to rape her. But for Carla, it was this was unsuccessful because the Valium didn't last very long, and um, Tammy would regain consciousness. And as she reawoke, obviously Paul moved, Paul moved away, and Tammy didn't think anything of it. Essentially, Paul becomes very angry about this and demands that they must try this again. 
another time. So Paul, very, very angry with Carla regarding this. He was obviously on top of Tammy when she started to come back around goes off at Carla saying you didn't use enough Valium, you didn't do it correctly, and basically blames her for the fact they almost got caught. So mm. immediately back on the control side is Paul. 20th of November 1990, following several leads that Paul may be the Scarborough rapist, Paul is taken in for questioning. During his questioning, Paul voluntarily gives his DNA to the forensic team for testing. He allows for blood, hair, semen and saliva to be taken. And when Paul is asked why he thinks he is being questioned, he makes kind of an off-the-cuff, blasé comment that he thinks he looks like the sketch of the Scarborough Rapist. And if you put the two together, he very much does. December 23rd, 1990. It is the Homolka family Christmas party. Carla, her parents and her two sisters are enjoying a night of festivities alongside their guest. Paul Bernardo. During this party, Tammy was granted permission to drink a small amount of alcohol. She was 15. After a night of fun, most of the Homolkas are off to bed, but Carla tells her family that she and Paul will be watching a movie with Tammy downstairs in the basement. Carla's parents and her sister Laurie make their way upstairs and are out of sight. Carla begins to make a round of drinks for the trio. She pours rum into the eggnog that the family had been drinking throughout the night, but in Tammy's drink, she adds something extra. Halcyon. She adds Halcyon to the drink that Tammy's drinking from, and Halcyon is actually a sedative that uh, Carla had stolen from her work at the veterinary clinic. So as well as putting Halcyon in Tammy's drink, the pair also had with them a halophane-soaked rag, and halophane is a general anaesthetic which is inhaled to maintain or induce anaesthesia. So basically the fact that Tammy had come round last time they attempted this and, and come back to kind of petrified the pair this time they didn't want anything to go wrong and their plan is a lot more drastic this time and a lot more aggressive they also begin to film events so at the point that tammy passes out the pair get their camera begin to film and this is where paul gets on top of tammy who is 15 years old at this time and also carla's sister youngest sister he also then encourages carla to not only place the halophane soaked rag over her mouth but also begin to perform sexual acts on her youngest sister so as Ben said, the halothane-soaked rag was used to keep Tammy under so she wouldn't wake up. But during this horrific event, uh, Tammy would actually begin to be sick and she actually ended up choking on her own vomit and passing away. When the pair realised that she wasn't able to wake up, they got her dressed and put her back in her bedroom and then they called 911. So yeah, as, as Ben said as well, they, they filmed the whole event. It's really serving how Paul was using his new camera, filming the whole day, everyone having a lovely Christmas time. Then it cuts just them to that scene, Carla and Paul both raping Tammy, which is... Obviously, it's horrific, and then, yeah, she'd pass away. It's been speculated whether or not Carla had actually planned to kill Tammy herself because she was jealous of all the attention that Paul was giving her and always talking about her and always wanting this thing to happen. Did she, on purpose, give a too high a dose to make sure she passed away? Or was it a complete accident? That's been speculated yeah. on. So that's the thing about this case. You're going off of two people's perspectives and, and future testimonies that will very much contradict and try and point blame at one another. The argument is that, as Tom said... Carla wanted Tammy out of the picture. The other argument is very much that Carla was simply doing everything she could because she was petrified of Paul and wanted to keep herself alive. So obviously this was taking place at Merrim Midnight. So on the 24th of December 1990, a police and ambulances arrive at the scene at roughly 1.20am in an attempt to save Tammy. Detectives begin to question Carla and Paul immediately. Both of them tell the police that Tammy had continued to drink with them downstairs and that she must have had too much, which caused her to vomit and ultimately choked to her death. 
The ambulance crew rushed to St. Catherine's General Hospital but did not complete their journey. As police were interviewing Paul and Carla, they received a call that Tammy had passed away in the ambulance. Distressed after hearing the news, Carla's sister Laurie flees upstairs. Wanting to make sure that Laurie had support around her during this upsetting time, the detective interviewing Carla and Paul makes its way upstairs to comfort her. This gives Carla the perfect opportunity to dispose of the drugs that she had spiked her sister with. She takes the drugs and places them in a the cabinet in the laundry room, and then places the dirty clothes inside the washing. A coroner's report is conducted on Tammy's body. Those who saw the body immediately commented on the burn mark, which could be seen on Tammy's cheek and lips. Paul had told the police that this was in fact a carpet burn from when he took her to her bedroom. There's photos that can be found on this online. Obviously, it's horrific. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend to go and look at it. But the burn is quite a noticeable burn on the face. So yeah, Paul's story was it was a carpet burn when in fact it was due to the is an acid burn from the, the rag being kept upon her face. The autopsy for Tammy was they questioned these burns, but they theorised that it could be in fact burns from the gastric acid after Tammy had been sick. Nevertheless, the case was closed and Tammy's death was not seen as suspicious. After the night's events, Paul is visibly angry and he blames Carla for it all. He continues beats her and tells her that the only way she can make him happy again is to sexually please him as though she is Tammy. Which is just absolutely horrific. And it's how quickly they've acted as well. Obviously this is a supposedly a freak accident mm-hmm. but very quickly Carla has had the thought of hiding the evidence washing the clothes, moving the drugs into a, a hidden location yeah. it's all calling police, putting her back in the bed. It's all very very quick very um, very yeah. it's all very very quick, all very very calculated and considered. Um, which is quite chilling. And it's her own sister, her own yeah. family. I mean, yeah, the fact that she would give up her sister to be to be raped by her fiancé, let alone her joining in with the rape itself, which, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it's horrific. So January, the following month, 1991, a number of weeks have passed since Tammy's death. Paul was still deeply infatuated with Tammy. A video which is now known as the Fireside Chat is made. This video initially is filmed in the basement, Carla and Paul are both naked and performing sexual acts upon each other. In between the sexual acts, Carla tells Paul that she enjoyed watching him rape her sister. She then goes on to rub a red rose over his naked body and tells him that she wishes to place this rose on Tammy's grave so that she and he could be close together again. Which is just so, so warped. Yeah, there's a whole transcript of this online, which I looked at, but it's far... Like, you can find it if you want to find it. Yeah, the fireside chat transcript, but it's fucking horrific she then goes on to suggest that you know she wants to find more girls for for Paul to rape she's saying at the age of getting 13 year old girls because they'll be virgins and also would say about wanting to have kids for him so that he could rape them it's the most like horrific things you could imagine being said and whilst this conversation is all happening it's whilst that you know they're having sex and she's performing sex acts on them as well it's disgusting this conversation is absolutely vile so as well as this they're obviously in the basement where they have killed tammy Mm -hmm. uh whilst they're whilst they're having this conversation and doing these acts the video then shows the pair in tammy's bedroom here carla is dressed in tammy's clothes and acts like her sister the pair then engage in sexual intercourse Throughout the video, Carla suggests to Paul that if he wants to take more virginities, then they should do so in the summer. She also basically is, is play-acting as Tammy saying, I hope Carla doesn't find out. And Yeah. It's horrific. Absolutely horrific. And yes, she basically is implying here that there will be more, you know, there are more virgins where it's warmer, is, is her thought process there. The 1st of February 1991, the couple begins renting a house in St. Catharines. Carla told those close to her that this would allow her parents to grieve the death of her sister. The couple's time in this house was anything but pleasant. Behind closed doors, Paul would continue to hit Carla. She was even made to sleep on the floor. On the 7th of June, 1991, Carla and Paul are drifting in their relationship. 
during his bachelor trip to Florida, Paul had fallen for a nurse named Alison Worthington. It has been alleged that she particularly enjoyed anal sex, which appealed to the Bernardo's sexual sadism. Alison even arrived at the Hamolka Bernardo household, and when she arrived, she was greeted by Carla, who she thought was Paul's sister, as Paul had told Carla she had to play this role. Carla knew she had to try and find a way to keep her future husband around. So that's bizarre in itself. So he's met, he's out on his on his stag do, essentially, other side of the country, brings back a lady from his stag do to the family home, mm. as if as if that's an acceptable thing to do. You're going to say, pretend to be my sister, I'm going to have sex with her. He's, he's completely got her under his spell. Alison Worthington was never heard from again. So when Carla used to work at a pet shop, she made friends with a younger girl that worked there as she was 15 years old. And the girl will be referred to as Jane Doe during this podcast. So Jane Doe would look, look up to Carla, look up to her as being a bigger sister. She trusted her. Carla invited her to her wedding and the reception. So when Carla asked if she would like to go to the house, it didn't seem bizarre or, or at all weird behaviour. On the 7th of June 1991, Jane was invited to the couple's home where the trio drank, with Jane being spiked. After Jane loses consciousness, Carla calls Paul into the basement telling her fiancé that his wedding present is ready. That's horrific. The video recorder is set up and Paul watches as Carla sexually assaults Jane. He then would go on to record himself raping Jane. Waking up the next morning, unaware of her sexual assault, Jane felt what she assumed to be her first hangover, because Jane had never drunk before this evening, so she got drunk with the guys and she's a bit embarrassed, working the next day, feeling a bit worse for wear, but she didn't think it was anything out of the ordinary. So Jane believed she couldn't handle alcohol, and when her mum asked what, wrong, what was wrong with her, Jane simply told her mum that she had the flu. So the 14th of June, 1991. So we're now going to talk about a young lady named Leslie Mahaffey, who was 14 years old. She lived with her mother and stepfather, and it was not unusual for Leslie to spend days away from the family home at the time. However, she would always make sure that she would come home to see her younger brother, whom she loved dearly. A few days before her abduction, Leslie had lost some friends in a fatal car accident. On the night before her abduction, she attended a memorial service for one of the friends she had lost in the accident. So as Leslie was at a memorial service and the time continued to tick on, Leslie ended up missing her curfew. And as a result, her mother and stepfather locked the doors in an attempt to teach her a lesson. That is... Yeah, she's going. I mean, she's going through quite a bit at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's not going for a jolly. She's at a memorial. They could never have predicted that this one action would result in Leslie's abduction and consequently her death. Leslie leaves the service and is walked home by some friends. Her friends drop her off and wait for her to enter the house. When Leslie finds that the side door has been locked, she ushers her friends home and tells them she will be fine as she is sure the front door will be open. Usually when this would happen, she would have to ring the doorbell and answer to her angry parents. This would not happen tonight. Finding that the front door is not open either, Leslie walks to a local convenience store. On her walk, she calls a friend and asks if she can stay the night. So I think, I think with everything that was going on, she was obviously highly emotional at the time. She decided, look, I'm not going to ring the doorbell. I'm not going to wake my parents up. I don't want to go through any more kind of emotions tonight. And she might be a bit angry about them doing it. It was a bit of a fuck you to them as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On her walks towards the local convenience store, she calls a friend and asks if she can stay the night. And unfortunately, the friend says no. Their call ended at 2.30 a.m. So we talk about this so much in the podcast, so many different times, so many different episodes being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So this is 2.30am and she is greeted by Paul Bernardo. Paul offers Leslie a cigarette and after she says yes to the offer, he tells her that the cigarettes are in his car. So despite the fact that Paul informs Leslie that the cigarettes are in his car, she, you know, she trusts him, she trusts the impression that he's made and they make their way to Paul's vehicle. This is when Paul frightens Leslie by placing a knife on her. He then wraps a hoodie around Leslie's face and shoves her into his car. When Leslie arrives at Paul and Carla's house, she is still blindfolded. 
so he used the hoodie to obviously tie around her face. Initially, she is taken to the guest room, and this is where Paul begins to undress her. At the same time, Carla is asleep, completely unaware of what her fiancé has been spending his evening doing. After a few hours, Paul tells Carla about the 15-year-old girl he has kidnapped. Carla waits upstairs until Paul is finished abusing Leslie on his own. After he is done, Paul guides Leslie up the stairs. Carla is told to prepare drinks for the trio. Leslie is drugged and raped for the next 24 hours. During this time, she is forced to praise Paul and Paul and Carla film the whole ordeal. When Leslie is not being tortured, she is given a teddy bear to hold. Which is, I mean, the whole thing is horrific, but it's just little details like that. It's just so bizarre and just... This is the, the one that, for me, really gave me kind of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley mm. vibes. It's absolutely fucking grim. Leslie tells her captors that her blindfold is slipping. Paula and Carla now decide that they cannot let Leslie leave, as she may have seen their identities, or she may be able to give a description of Paul's car. As a result, Leslie is killed. So literally her saying... My blindfold slipping is what's essentially caused her life to end. So Paul and Carla's later testimonies about these events do conflict about how their victims were murdered. Carla testified that Paul killed Leslie by strangling her with an electrical cord. But Paul said that Carla killed Leslie in the same way that she murdered her sister, by giving her a lethal dose of halcyon. After Leslie had taken her last breaths, her body is placed in the basement. This will stop Carla's family from seeing the atrocities she and Paul have committed as they come over for a Father's Day dinner later that day. During the dinner, Carla had to go out of her way to stop her mother from going down to the basement on more than one occasion. Once Carla's family had then left, Paul dismembered Leslie's body using a circular saw. He then placed her body parts into eight cement blocks. The pair then drove Leslie's body parts to a lake named Lake Gibson. The pair hoped that the cement blocks would stop the body parts from floating up onto the surface of the lake. However, at this time every year, the lake has extremely low water levels, which meant the blocks were easily discovered. 18th of June 1991. When Leslie is not present at her friend's funeral, there is concern. A missing person report is officially filed for Leslie Mahaffey. 29th of June 1991. A canoeist finds the concrete blocks in the river. The blocks were pulled out and very quickly it was determined that they contained body parts. Braces found in the mouth of the victim were used to identify her as Leslie Murphy. Her torso was found floating in the lake as some of the concrete had not hardened. Whilst Leslie's body has been retrieved from the river, Paul and Carla are at the altar saying their vows. They had a fancy wedding and it was clear that they spent a lot of money to make their day extravagant. Carla only allowed a quick mention of her sister Tammy, who she had killed six months prior to her wedding. Tammy was only acknowledged in a speech by her father. They took a honeymoon in Hawaii. August 1991. So Tom mentioned Jane Doe earlier on in, in the timeline. This refers to a lady that Carla worked with at a pet shop. So the couple once again spikes Jane when in August she was invited back to the couple's house. Her drink was laced and Jane lost consciousness for the second time in the couple's company. However, this time, Jane stops breathing. Getting flashbacks of Tammy, the pair panic. They call 911, but after managing to stabilise Jane's breathing, they call 911 yet again and tell them that their services are no longer required. No further inquiry was made. The sexual requirements of their friendship would not end there. Jane would go on to recall her time with Paul, saying in a later interview that he would take me to the bedroom and say he wanted me to perform oral sex on him because if I didn't keep him happy, Carla wouldn't be happy and I wanted to keep Carla happy. Paul would continue to make his advances to Jane 
She denied it every time. Jane was a virgin and was not ready for sex with anybody, and definitely not a man who was nearly in his 30s. So Jane is 15 at this time. Jane was forced to make an agreement with Paul. She had to promise him that when she was ready to have sex, Paul would be the man to take her virginity. Which is just absolutely bleak. Jane's mother did not approve of the friendship and the amount of time that they all spent together. Jane would go to Carla and Paul's house almost every weekend, despite her mother's pleas not to. That's an understandable kind of concern from the mother. You have your 15-year-old daughter hanging around with a guy in his 30s and, and his wife, who's just married. is a bit strange. Yeah, definitely. Jane was a keen horse rider and confided to her teacher about the sexual abuse she is facing. Her concerned teacher tells her mother. When confronted about it, Jane tells her mother that Paul had fondled her breasts. Jane's mother then confronts Paul. Paul clearly does not get the message as he then calls Jane later in the day, upset as he cannot believe that Jane did not tell her mother that she had asked for him. He's literally such a fucking piece of shit. He is, yeah. The 16th of April, 1992, Christian French, who was just 15 years old, had just finished her day at school and she was asked by a woman to help her with directions. The woman had a map and was standing outside of a car in a church car park. Christian walked past his car every day whilst taking her journey home. Once she is greeted by Carla, Christian is forced into Paul's car where he brandished a knife to her body. Carla makes her way into the backseat of the vehicle and to keep control of Kristen, she grabs onto tufts of her hair. They kept Kristen restrained whilst witnesses watched in shock as she was driven away by Paul and Carla. These witnesses did come forward but unfortunately one witness was adamant it was a beige Camaro that was driven by the abductors. This was a wrong description and heavily slowed down the police investigation. When Kristen does not arrive home after her school day, her parents automatically know that something is wrong. This was very unlike Kristen who would always arrive home around 20 minutes after school ended. The police are immediately called and a search for Christian French commences. Christian is known for her bravery. It's believed that she left clues for those who were trying to find her. She did fight back and left the shoe along with a part of a Toronto roadmap at the scene. Furthermore, whilst under captivity, she asked Paul to collect her dinner from one of the furthest points of the town, meaning he would be gone for at least half an hour. During this time, she pleaded for Carla to release her. Carla refused. Paul following on and doing that. Yeah. You wouldn't expect it, would you? No. When they arrived at the house, Christian was raped for days over the Easter weekend. She was made to drink alcohol and was not blindfolded by her captures. This is an important fact because, unlike their previous victim, the lack of blindfold suggests that Paul and Carla never intended to release her. As well as physically torturing Christian, Paul and Carla would make her watch the news with her desperate parents pleading for her return home. So yeah, I mean... It's horrific. It's she, like, was, she was made to watch her dad basically give her a press conference with the police saying, you know, we're looking for you, we're going to find you. Which is like the area of Castro. Yeah, like very he, similar. Because he showed them the uh, FBI's most wanted, didn't he? And yeah. the missing girls and we'd make them watch footage about their parents asking for them back. And yeah, that's just, um, yeah. Messed up. 19th of April, 1992. Kristen is killed three days after her initial abduction. Paul told police that Carla had killed Kristen after she beat her with a rubber mallet when she made a desperate attempt to escape whilst he was away collecting dinner. Carla, however, told police that Paul strangled Kristen to death with an electrical cord. Surely there are differences with the with a post-mortem that would evidence uh, an electrical cord strangulation or beaten to death with a mallet. After her death, her body is washed and her hair is cut off. Carla told the police that they did this to make the identification process longer. Kristen's naked, freshly washed body is then transported in Paul's car to a ditch in Burlington. The Bernardos now made their way to Carla's family home for an Easter weekend dinner. 
On the 30th of April 1992, Kristen French's body is found in a ditch by a man who was there initially to look for scrap metal. The public begin to fear for the lives of the schoolchildren, and the murders become referred to as the schoolgirl murders. Carla told the police that Paul did not fear their capture. May 12th, 1992, police go to the Bernardo household and question Paul for an hour. The police had decided to re-interview suspects in the Scarborough rapist case. They theorised that whoever had committed these rapes had now become more aggressive and had become the schoolgirl murderer. So the police were quick to... Quick to act. You're quick to act in terms of that. They're quick to link those two things together. Autumn and winter of 1992. During this time, Carla knows her marriage cannot survive and she begins to create distance between her and her husband. She's now sleeping in the same guest room that Leslie was raped in. After one particularly violent night, Carla calls her father and asks for him to collect her. Paul is livid and marches out to collect his wife when her father arrives. His attempt to control Carla fails and she leaves for the safety of her parents' house. After a few days, Carla returns home and she is greeted by an enraged Paul. Paul terrifies Carla as he tells her that if she walks out of the door again, he will tell her parents the truth about Tammy's death. Carla stays. December of 1992. The Centre of Forensic Sciences starts their analysis on the DNA samples collected from Paul Bernardo back in 1990, when he was initially taken in as a suspect in the Scarborough Rapist case. On the 27th of December 1992, Carla is beaten by Paul in one horrific attack with a flashlight which leaves her with very heavy bruising under her eyes. There are quite horrific uh, photos of Carla with two very blackened eyes from this particular attack from Paul. Carla is also almost choked to death after Paul tightly wraps an electrical cord around her neck. So the reason why they took so long to kind of test his DNA was apparently they had a I think it was close to 40,000 samples from different people. So they were going through testing all this DNA. That's why it's taken so long to get to his. So it wasn't a case of the police, you know, the police couldn't actually act upon it faster. And I believe at the time in Canada, DNA testing, there was very few people who were actually qualified to be able to handle this and be able to study the data of it as well. So it was a very, very slow process to get to, get to DNA. January 1993, Carla hides in the house for a week before returning to work. When she arrives at work, her boss and colleagues question her bruises, but Carla tells them that they appeared due to a car accident. None of her colleagues truly believe this story, and one worker goes as far as calling Carla's mother. So once they call Carla's mother and she comes over to actually see the, the bruising, she insists that Carla is taken to the hospital immediately. Carla is given medical attention for three days during her stay for bruises and broken ribs. After leaving the hospital, Carla decides to move in with her aunt and uncle for her own protection. She decides to press charges against her husband. So this is probably for me the key moment that suggests actually this whole time she was in fear of Paul. But it could also be flick of the switch. Mm. I realise we've gone too far. I realise there's loads of evidence against us. Police are gaining on us. I'm going to turn on him. I think that she was more than happy to play along with it for a very long time. And she, I think she as well got sexual gratification from the things. I, I agree. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, in terms of after that beating she suffered from Paul and him nearly killing her with um, the cord, I think she might have been then genuinely fearing for her life and thinking mm. that she might be taken out to stop her ever saying anything about him yeah and the but, fact that they actually got photographic evidence of the, these bruises under the eyes that i mean the photo yeah. is horrific mm. but maybe she's then thought right that's enough for them to believe my side yeah let me take this momentum against him but she deserves it toronto police reached out to hamolka as bernardo's dna sample confirmed that he was the scarborough rapist 
Detectives presumed that there was a connection to the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Carla agrees to an interview with the police, as she assumes that they wanted to discuss the charges she was pressing against her husband. When Carla enters the room, she sees detectives from the Green Ribbon Task Force, who were investigating the schoolgirl murders. She refuses to talk, and when she goes back to her aunt and uncle's house, Carla tells her uncle who Paul really is. Carla asks the police for a plea deal, Carla wants immunity from prosecution in return for all of the evidence she has on Paul Bernardo. So yeah, it's 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 a kind of a combination of she's just been brutally beaten by him, but also now she's noticed that the evidence against them as a pair is growing and growing, and Paul's circumstances are looking increasingly unfavourable. 17th of February 1993, Paul is arrested and a search warrant for the Bernardo house is obtained. And that is the timeline of the Ken and Barbie killers. We're going to move on to the aftermath now. So when Paul was arrested, he denied ever wanting to kill the girls he and Carla had tortured. He told police that the whole thing was Carla's idea, as she had convinced Paul that it was too risky to release the girls after the horrors they had inflicted upon them. On the 19th of February 1993, the search on Paul and Carla's house is conducted. The team failed to find the videotapes which showed Paul and Carla raping and torturing Tammy, Leslie and Kristen. The only tape removed from the house as evidence was a tape of Carla sexually assaulting Jane. Paul initially did want to plead not guilty for his involvement in the murder of these girls. Paul had hired a lawyer whose name was Ken Murray. Ken snuck into the household and removed the incriminating tapes under Paul's instructions. Which That's is mental. Going above and beyond for a lawyer, but that is madness. He would not hand over these tapes to law enforcement for another 16 months. What a yeah. During this time in May 1993, Carla accepts a plea deal, which is now commonly known as the deal with the devil. The police refused to offer her immunity, but did allow a reduced sentence. Carla agreed. This is the absolutely batshit thing in this case. Well, one of many bats. There's a lot of bats and there's lots of shit. Accepting <laughs> uh, her deal, Carla tells the police that she was forced into her life of crime because Paul's violent rages made her fear the consequences if she refused to do so. She also tells the police about Tammy's death. Carla's trial begins on the 20th of June 1993. Carla does plead guilty, as sentenced to two counts of manslaughter and receives a 12-year jail sentence. Her plea deal and her sentencing are covered by a publication ban order by the judge to ensure a fair trial for Paul Bernardo. Police realise that they have made a huge error when Paul's lawyer quits and he hands the videotapes to John Rosen, Paul's new lawyer. John hands these tapes over to law enforcement. These tapes show not only that Paul had willingly inflicted torture upon these girls, but it also showed that Carla was a willing participant too. Unfortunately, by this point, it was now too late. The plea deal could not be redacted. Surely. <laughs> I mean, surely. If you've literally got video evidence of someone raping and torturing and being part of the murder or cover at least covering it up, you could then go, OK, well, obviously we're going to redact that. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, well, we fucked up, didn't we? <laughs> it's insane. There seems to me that there should be paperwork to cover that mm. type of situation. Yeah, claws. Like, yeah. If, if we do find a videotape of you doing the murders, well, none of this counts. So I had scribs. These tapes were then played in the courtroom. The judge had issued a publication ban to be in place, which meant that no media inside Canada could ever use these videos. However, as the ban did not extend to other countries, in the United States, any information regarding the case was still legally allowed to be published. During Paul's trial, which began in the May of 1995, Jane Doe gave evidence against Paul. She was just 19 years old at the time, and due to her age at the time of the event, Jane's identity was protected, and all in the courtroom were made to step outside as Jane gave her testimony. In the September of 1995, Paul Bernardo was charged with two counts of each of first-degree murder, kidnapping, 
forcible confinement and aggravated sexual assault, and one count of committing an indignity to a body. He is sentenced to life imprisonment and was only eligible for parole once he had served 25 years. However, Paul is now labelled as a dangerous offender, which means the chances of him ever being allowed out on parole are highly unlikely. Paul's previous lawyer, Ken Murray, was also charged with obstruction of justice and possession of child pornography in 1997. Him being a dickhead, not giving the tapes to people, he's, he's getting done for child porn for that, which is well-deserved. 2005, Paul's lawyer told law enforcement that Paul had now admitted to 10 more assaults. In 2005, Carla served her 12 years and was released from prison. After her release from prison, Carla asked if she could legally change her name. This was denied. Instead, Carla went on to marry her lawyer's brother, Thierry Bordelais. The couple has since had three children. Imagine that being your mum. Mm-hmm. Imagine being the lawyer who knows all that, that the lawyer's brother knows every single bit of the detail as well. I mean, like, yeah. So one of the rapes that Paul um, committed when he was the Scarborough rapist, there was someone else that actually got got arrested and was uh, was jailed for 16 months. But when Paul was arrested and admitted to the, the crimes, then that person was then set free. So one person who was innocent of that crime was put away for 16 months of his life as well. And obviously walks around with that label, which is... Again, just dark in itself. So Carla's marriage sparked outrage amongst many. And when people realised that she was volunteering at her children's school, flyers were handed out which showed the other parents' concerns. Since her release, a Facebook group has been made which tracks her known movements. So there are actually quite a number of photos taken of Carla when she was working outside of this school. Kind of like a lynch mob in terms of them recognising her and taking photos. Imagine imagine her being around your your children. Yeah, absolutely understandable. Paul has tried for parole numerous times since 2018 when he became eligible and each time it has been denied. Good. There is a, a quite a lengthy video online. It's kind of... JCSE. It's kind of JCSE. It's inspired by... But it's it's of police interrogating him about 10 years before he even became... So it must have been 2008-ish. ish, And he is just so bizarre. He's so cocky, arrogant. It's just called... This is what ma- manipulation looks like, isn't this it? This is what, yeah. Manip- yeah. Manipulative behaviour. Like yeah. You can see elements of him being very charming, very likeable, mm. and he's trying to build rapport with them. But every time he gets found out, he reverts back to this different person. And he yeah. very much speaks to them on their level as well, saying, I think at one point as well, they ask him a question or they go through some evidence against him and he just sits back and goes, okay, problem. And then he finds a problem of what they're accusing him of. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating watch if you have got the time. It's not really as good as Jim Cunt's from those. No, not Jim Cunt paddle. Yeah, I think that's fair. In 1993, Tammy's body was exhumed. Inside her coffin, an invitation to the Homolka Bernardo wedding was found with notes written by Paul and Carla. At the request of her family, these items were removed and she was laid once again to rest. So imagine that. So it's one of them that has said, yeah, by the way, there's a, there's yeah. a note in the coffin. But having to put the family through that as well is just another act of evil. Since her death, a foundation has been set up in the name of Kristen French. According to their website, the Kristen French CACN provides a safe place to help, heal and end child abuse for Niagara's children and youth who have experienced alleged physical abuse sexual abuse and become the targets of internet luring or with the unwilling witness of violence. Debbie Mahaffey has since spoken out about her heartbreak and her words have been used to deny Paul parole. So that's the mother of Leslie Mahaffey. She wrote, For me, listening to and observing Mr Bernardo at his last hearing, he spoke about his acts of horrific, sadistic violence as if he was speaking about the weather. There was a complete absence of humanity. If Mr. Bernardo had no insight into his actions after sitting in a jail cell for a quarter of a century, he certainly cannot and has not 
magically found that insight in the past two years and eight months, regardless of the words he tries to use today. So a little uh, slightly lighter fact. Paul was actually interested in pursuing a musical career as a rap artist. Paul, throughout this whole case, there's lots and lots of tapes and footage because he had a camera like using it. And there's some footage of him rapping along with Vanilla Ice. He'd even purchased the equipment to make a music studio. He even took Kristen French to his music room and Carla testified that Kristen just didn't care. There are videos and audio of him rapping to the camera and um, he sounds like, in the ones I've heard, he sounds like Ghostface out of Scream. You know, the hello Sydney. But in his rapping voice, right? And there's, there's this particular song. Basically, he wanted to release his debut album, which he was going to call Deadly Innocence. And the lyrics go, Yo, I'm the cracker rapper, the lady attacker. The coppers think they know me, but the coppers, they can blow me. Because the Scarborough raper, he's just the tip of this caper. And then this is the part that really sounds like kind of the villain from Scream. Did you ever get caught? No, never. Why? Because I'm the deadly innocent guy. Did you ever get caught? No, never. I'm a deadly innocent guy. And it's just, it's just really bizarre. Well, we'll play, we'll play it for you because I don't, I don't want my, I don't want to say that. That's already out there. Can't man. rap. I can. No, you can't. Yeah, I can. No, mate, trust me. Did you ever get caught? No, never. Why? They say, I'm a deadly innocent guy. Did you ever get caught? Did you ever get caught? Did you ever get caught? No, never, never. Why? I'm a deadly innocent guy. So keep on fronting, man. You fronting and you ride like you tough, man. You ain't been where I've been, man. You ain't seen what I've seen. You ain't at where I'm at, man. So this is not replacing Stick Up Kid, okay? Deadly Innocence is a theme song, the title track to the album, and it's basically establishing my street credibility. This is a more of a, you know, your hardcore battling um, the world through your ways of getting your illegal money or whatever you're doing. Um, and uh, you use everything, all your feelings, and the real life feelings you all experience, including everything you, you experience in all the smuggling and all the other activities to make a buck. So still today, Bernardo is thankfully behind bars. He says that being him in prison is hard. Luca Magnotta case, obviously Magnotta started his own rumour that he and Hamolka were dating. Mm. Couldn't really, although there are some similarities in terms of kind of an egomaniac between yeah. uh, Magnotta and Bernardo. Yeah, a really horrible case, really big yeah, case. Yeah, very, very dark. One that, yeah, as I said, kind of the name of it, you kind of thought, well, is it, as I said, it did have killers in it, but you didn't think it was as dark and, and horrible as it, would, as it would turn out to be. Well, one thing I was going to say, Hamolka sounds like it should be vegan milk. Can I have a glass of Hamolka, please? Hamolka latte? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Do you agree with that? No, I agree with that, yeah. Thank you very much. Good point. I know you obviously like the psychopathy checklist. Bernardo scored fairly high. 35 out of 40. Homolka, uh, in contrast, scored only 5 out of 40. So between the two, that's a 40 out of 40. And now time for the lookalike. <laughs> what does it look like? That looks a bit like that. It looks a bit like it. All right, Ben. Um, yeah. I actually got quite happy with my lookalikes. Uh, I'm happy with one, and then ooh, I've got two more sort of also rounds. Well, do you want to, do you want me to start, or do you want to start? You start. You, you do the honours. I'm glad that you're happy with yours, because yeah. you, you've had a mixed season so far, haven't you? Have I? You, you, yeah. Oh, good to know. So, my first one for Carla is um, Michaela Strachan from The Really Wild Things. Oh, that's good. Can you see that? That's good. Got the same teeth and face and nose. 
so that's my first one. Okay, a more recent Bernardo, bald Bernardo. I've gone Billy Corgan. Oh, that is good. That is good. I think I think Tom's got Carla and I've got Paul because I struggled for Carla. I've got a few for um, Paul. Oh, I was at the pub last night. Yeah, that's what I said. I could, do you look like he's for this? Hmm? They both said for this for this one here. This is this is for Pat and James. Said this it looks like a young Prince Andrew. I'm not too sure, but there is something about his face that I thought would yeah, that makes sense. Maybe yeah. I haven't found my picture there. But. I think I've well, I've used a similar picture to you and gone with Lee Ryan from Blue, who's in all sorts of trouble at the moment. But it's just the face, I think, is a little bit kind of similar. Yeah, I don't think I think both of us haven't got it quite right. No, I was going to go for Young Gaza, but couldn't get the photos to line up. I've got two more. Sure. Which usually I don't go go this this big on it. So this one here, him looking a bit. Yeah, James Arthur. No. Marshall Vaughan, who's a drummer for Phoebe, Phoebe Bridges. Oh, cool. Yeah, I can see that. that. Yeah. And, uh, have you got any more? Or got one it? more, one more, yeah. There's a picture of Homolka that's when she's... A recent picture of her, I suppose, and it's bugging me because I'll put the picture up now. I haven't got one for this picture, but in the comments, please tell us who this looks like because there's someone in a film recently that either plays a sex worker or a drug addict or a combination of both that... Not saying that she, not, well, I've dug myself into a bit of a hole. But who does this look like? Please tell me because it's, there's definitely something there. But for young uh, Carla, you, I think you've won young Carla with your lookalike. But I went for a little bit of Brittany Murphy. I like Brittany Murphy. I like her too. But I think yours is better. Yeah. I think you've won the Carlas and I've, I've won Paul. So this one here for Paul. Oh yeah, it's still going. Yep. Looks like it's not the Jimmy Hill, but it's a different Jimmy Hill presenter. Looks, looks a lot like him there. Yeah, that's pretty good. Came bearing lookalikes this week, but yeah, let us know who if you had any lookalikes we do we didn't call. As I said, it's a very very dark case as they always are, but yeah, particularly some elements of this case, yeah, are darker than some of the things we covered before. Definitely, De- Moore's murderers vibes. Definitely very similar. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But guys, if you haven't quite had enough of us covering cases and, and discussing murder, we do have our minisodes all over on the new home of Icmap at icmap.co.uk, where we now have over a hundred minisodes over, over there, wow. which is crazy and if you become a member over there you get access to exclusive merchandise you also get access uh, for the prestige level you get access to our discord which is popping off we talk about cases that we cover every week what goes into the research what's coming up um, things that we found particularly fascinating or chilling about each case and yeah i'm really i've really taken to discord i never thought i ever would say that but i have i love it and we also have a lot of new merch over on the store, so be sure to check it out. We've got mugs, we've got the, the Swampy and the Scully mugs, we've got the Cult mug, which you have to be a prestige, which you have to be a member for to get that one. But we also have a lot of new merchandise, which is available for anyone who isn't signed up to the website. If you've watched the episode on YouTube and you're still here, why not like and subscribe to the channel? Likes really make a big difference, I've heard, about YouTube. So please like the video. If you're this far, go on. Click a little likey and click a little subscribe as well and click the notification bell. If you're an audio person and you've got us in your ears, please leave us a review, a nice one, and consider giving us five stars. It means a lot to us and it helps a wider audience find the channel. And if you want to keep it up to date with what is going on in the ICMOP world, why not follow us on Facebook? We've also got a Twitter and we've also got a Instagram at Pod. And we also have a subreddit slash ICMAP. He's a bloody mod. I'm a mod now. 
And guys, we'll be back again next week with a brand new case, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. And like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Unless, unless it's... Putting things in people's spaghetti. Parachutes. Hamster parachute, yeah. Mm. Fucking hell, I forgot about that. Yeah. Stealing drugs from a vet. The vet, no. She was the vet. Nary assistant. That's what my vet said, didn't Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> you didn't get it. I got it. Vet, war veteran. No, I wasn't. No, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, mate. See you next I'll week. I'll see you later. See you next week. See you next right. week. Two fit. See you, Dan. Thank you. Who knows? Hello. If only I got it. Yeah. It's oh, that's incredible. Favoritism again. Hello. <laughs> Favoritism again. <laughs> he. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.